well, how do you define meditation? And I was kind of, you know, I was like kind of stumped there. And, I, and as I kind of like unpacked it, you know, it's like always pushing towards the edge of now, you know? And so mm. like just coming into closer contact with the now and many different ways that it could look and it doesn't certainly have to look a certain way at all it, it really opened my eyes you know there's there's many different ways of it looking and hey everybody and welcome to episode 26 of contemplate this conversations on contemplation and compassion i'm tom bushlack and for this episode i am your co-host along with nick zalfo the host of the podcast Catching Z's, A Millennial's Guide to Mindfulness. Nick and I were introduced by a mutual colleague, and we realized that we have a very similar purpose behind our podcasts, which is to highlight the wisdom of others' spiritual practices and to share that with as many people as possible. Since we were so aligned, we decided to make this a co-interview, just taking turns interviewing each other back and forth about our meditation practices, podcasting, and how we apply our practice to daily life and sharing our passion with others. You can check out Nick's podcast, Catching Z's, by searching for Catching Z's wherever you download your podcasts, or you can go to the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 26. While you're there, you can also sign up for our email list and get a free guided meditation. And if you'd really like a couple more free gifts to support your contemplative practice, you can also go over to centeringforwisdom.com and download my free ebook along with another free guided centering meditation. In the meantime, I'm always grateful if you can leave a written review on Apple Podcasts or other podcast hosting sites. And you can always make a secure free will donation on the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 26. Thanks for being here, and let's get right into my co-interview with Nick Zalfo. Welcome back to another episode of Catching Z's. Super pumped. Got on Tom Bushlack, and it'll kind of be also an interesting episode, um, as you'll see here shortly with Tom's introduction. <laughs> yeah so not only is this your episode but this will be episode 26 of contemplate this and uh, we were introduced by a mutual connection nick zolfo and i and we decided it'd be fun to kind of co-interview each other for both of our podcasts so that's what we're doing here today just podcasters doing podcast things for each other you know <laughs> so right. yeah here we are um yeah and, and as you mentioned we were introduced through a uh, kind of mutual connection and we had a chance to talk you and i just about like our spiritual journeys and stuff and and we figured uh to make this somewhat of structured conversation maybe uh to start with your your journey which started about 20 years ago so if you just want to wherever within that you want to start sure yeah so I was introduced to what I would consider more like formal practice of a contemplative prayer when I was in college. So I went to a small Catholic rural university in northern Minnesota that was run by Benedictine monks and sisters. And so in that Benedictine tradition, they have some long history of different forms of uh, meditation and contemplative prayer. So I was introduced primarily to centering prayer was kind of my first and still my what I consider my primary grounding or home practice. So I was in a class uh, taught by Sister Mary Ruder. 
still remember her. Um, still have kept in touch with her actually a little bit. And uh, she was a sister at, at the College of St. Benedict and taught a class on the Benedictine tradition. And she had another one of her sisters, Sister Catherine Howard, come into our class and teach us centering prayer. So she went through their kind of four guidelines for centering prayer, which I think I'll, I'll go through a little bit later in the podcast. She just kind of said, here it is, and then set a timer for 20 minutes. And I had this experience of sitting in this class and feeling like, I just settled right into it and it felt like home and uh, it stuck. And so I started, I really started practicing from then on um, with, you know, varying levels of intensity and and regularity, but it really has been a regular practice for over the last 20 years or so, a little bit more than 20 years. And um, so that, I mean, that was kind of the, the doorway. There were lots of other people who came along that I connected with that sort of deepened that practice. There was a, another monk at St. John's, Father Mark Thamert, who became kind of a spiritual director. And I guess what's maybe important about that is he introduced me to what I would call a interspiritual approach, even though I didn't have that word for it at the time. So he was really interested in all things that kind of lead to that resting in the divine presence, whatever takes you there. Um, so. He introduced me and I think even gave me a copy of Thich Nhat Hanh's book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, which I think is still one of the best introductions, simple introductions to a basic mindfulness practice and following the breath, which I find uh, sort of works well and complements well the use of the sacred word in centering prayer. Uh, so he was into the Enneagram and kind of worked with that in spiritual direction and mystical poetry of Rumi and Hafiz and Rainer Maria Rilke. So all of that sort of blended together, and I just ate it up as a college student and kept going on my own. It wasn't until I did a lot of reading on my own. I read like a lot of Thomas Keating, who's one of the teachers in the Centering Prayer tradition, and uh, kind of followed different threads here and there. But it wasn't until maybe... I guess it was, I don't know, seven or eight years ago now that I got more formally involved with Contemplative Outreach, the organization that teaches Centering Prayer, where I finally became a, a commissioned presenter and went through the formation for that. So there's a, a four-part, four-conference workshop that is kind of the standard introduction for teaching the practice. So I went through that training and, and since then have um, been able to, I think it going through that training actually deepened my own practice. I was really shocked having done it for so long that getting into a community of more intense practitioners and they always say the best way to learn something is to have to teach it. Uh, so it, it took me a lot deeper into my practice and a deeper appreciation for it. And then it's just been a, a joy to be more connected and sharing that at workshops where people are learning it for the first time and kind of um, having that world opened for them. Uh, that's kind of a big flyover. I don't know if you want to ask more follow-up questions before we tell your story or. Yeah. I mean, why not? We'll see how this goes. We're, okay. we're kind of free flowing. Um, I think, you know, from a perspective of uh, folks that I typically talk to where their contemplative practice is like a meditation or mindfulness, um, there's, there's like some sort of, 
uh, feeling that you're getting, you know, whether that's internal feeling or in your mind or something that, that really gives them an insight, like to, to continue on with this practice or they get enough of a glimpse. It's like, Oh, there's something that could be really life changing here. So for, for this like centering prayer, I'm not familiar at all with it, uh, the Mm. technique at all. And so is it something like that where you like, you start doing it and it, you know, changes maybe even perspectives or subtleties about life that that kind of gave you the inkling to continue on yeah that's a great question i think in some ways there are different lenses through which i look at the practice and its effect um ramdas uses the image of like when you go to the uh have your eyes tested and they put those different lenses in front of you that we can, we have different kind of lenses, spiritual lenses to look at the world. So on the one, on a kind of more immediate level, I've always struggled with anxiety quite a bit. And the practice of taking 20 minutes of silence and the basic practice in centering prayer is um, you have a sacred word that functions a little bit differently from a mantra practice. So when you, you have this sacred word, you choose the word the meaning of the word itself is really not important. The teaching is that the word is a symbol of our intention to consent or just to say yes to God uh, in the moment. Uh, the way it's phrased is to God's presence and action within, as well as to whatever is arising within our sort of conscious level of awareness. So that saying yes to me is like a release from the anxiety because the anxiety is about fear and pushing back against what is occurring or actually even more likely it's pushing back against what I think or fear might happen in the future and tensing against that. So the practice of noticing when I'm doing that and then coming back to repeating that word, whenever I notice that I'm getting engaged or caught up in that um, has been really helpful for me, not just during the actual maybe more formal practice of sitting down to do centering prayer. Of course, it feels good then often, not always, but often. Um, But then also I find when I'm doing my practice regularly, I'm more tuned into that. And so I'm able to notice in the moment when I'm at work or with my spouse or my kids, when I'm starting to do that and I am more able to come back to the present moment and stop fighting what I either what is or what I think will be. So that's been really helpful for me in terms of working with um, the thoughts that drive that anxiety that I've struggled with. And that's maybe at like the thought, um, you might call it the mental health level. Um, but if I flip that lens at the, in the doctor's chair, getting my eyes tested, um, we might call it the, the deeper spiritual level. I think um, even as a young kid, I had this kind of longing and um, maybe almost like a a wordless longing. I didn't know where to place it. I grew up in a pretty um, pretty devout Catholic family, and I still practice in that as my primary tradition. Um, and I think that the the spiritual and religious language, but not just the language, the practices, it's a very um, embodied kind of movement focused or rhythm focused uh, liturgy in the Catholic world. That that's what, where I was able to channel that desire 
into what I would call, or actually what <laughs> Benedictines and others call this, this natural desire for God, for something more. And, um, and so that felt like as well, when I settled into the centering prayer practice, it gave that energy and that longing a direction and a place uh, and made it a little more real and tangible because those spiritual religious ideas can sometimes get a little heady. And I'm trained as a theologian in my background. Um, so it's a nice compliment to have that physical embodied practice to come back to um, because one of my favorite lines that I often quote in the, um, when I do the workshop on centering prayer is a line from St. Augustine who says, um, anything that we think about God cannot be God or is not God. So if we're thinking about God, we're not actually in relationship or present. Uh, and so centering prayer opens up a different way of being present to my own experience and to whatever we think we mean when we use the word God. <laughs> and I'm always careful to qualify that um, because whatever God is, it's something that's beyond what we can control or think with the rational mind. Mm, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And, <laughs> and yeah, as far as like your schooling goes, um, you had, you know, your undergraduate and then did you go immediately into, uh, like a PhD program? No, I kind of knew I wanted to. I had, um, well, I, I meandered, let's say, for a few years. Um, <laughs> my parents would <laughs> might have different language for it, <laughs> yeah. the lost child. <laughs> but um, no, there was a period in there, uh, even as a young kid, again, um, kind of growing up in that Catholic environment, I, th I thought about priesthood. And then when I was introduced to um, the Benedictine and contemplative tradition, the monastic tradition of that, um, I got really interested in the monastic life. So after college, I got some really good advice from a professor who was also a monk, uh, Michael Patella, New Testament scholar. I was taking a, like a directed readings course with him on the writings of Paul in the New Testament. And I mentioned to him my interest in graduate school in theology. And he gave me some of the best advice I ever got. He said, um, he said, you can always go back to grad school, but I would recommend taking some time and going out and doing some work. And he's like, if you get into a career and you like it, then that's great. There's nothing lost. If you go out there and you try some things and you still are thinking, man, I really want to go back. I really think that my calling would be more in that academic world. Then you can go back and you've got some life experience. And that ended up to be really, really good advice. So my first year after college, well, actually the, the summer after college, I went and worked at Voyager Outward Bound School, which is um, up in Ely, Minnesota, way, way up north on the Canadian border in the Boundary Waters. Um, so uh, guiding trips up in that area just for that summer. And then I went and I did a year of service with the Catholic Charities Volunteer Corps. That was in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, unfortunately, that program no longer exists, but it was like a, a postgraduate year of volunteer work and service. And uh, so I worked in a children's home for kids with severe emotional behavioral problems for a year. Um, that was pretty wild, but... Um, really good experience. And then after that, I got a little more serious about whether or not I had a 
vocation to the Benedictine world and explored that would go up to, I was living in the Twin Cities with some friends. I'd go up to St. John's for like a week at a time or like a long weekend just to see, kind of live as part of the community to see what that rhythm of prayer and work was like. Um, and then uh, a couple years after that, I did finally um, start the process of, of joining the monastery. So the first process is what they call being a candidate. That was a three-month thing for the summer. And then after you do that, it's a, it's a time of discernment, both for you and for the community, about whether or not this is what God is really calling you to. So after doing that, um, I went up there thinking that was it. I was going to be a monk. I had my mind made up. And um, they always say, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans. Um, so I started having actually some really severe anxiety to the point where I had kind of a breakdown at noon prayer one day in the monastery and got another fantastic piece of advice from the doctor of the monastery. This was a a lay woman, not a Benedictine, who ran the health center. And I went in there and kind of told her what I had experienced. It was probably like a severe panic or anxiety attack. And um, she just looked at me and said, you know, sometimes God uses our body to tell us something. What do you think God is saying right now? And I was like, oh, maybe I don't maybe this isn't my path. <laughs> it's like a light bulb went off. Um, so I, after that, um, left on really good terms. I mean, they were super supportive, the vocation director and, and everybody, because um, they really do think of it as a process. It's not like just show up and join. Um, so after that, that was when I finally got serious about applying to grad school. So that was a lot, way longer answer than you probably needed or what <laughs> <laughs> no no it's a, as is most of things you know a long and winding journey and yeah. you ended up so it was a phd program is that correct yeah first i did a master's uh master of theological studies at notre dame and um then went from that into the phd program in theology and ethics also at notre dame now, I should know, I know what ethics, I know what that means. I should definitely know <laughs> what theology means, but um, can you explain to me kind of what theology is and what that entails? Sure, yeah. Um, I guess the best way to think of it is if you break down the actual word, right? So logos means like reason or rational study. Um, so biology, right, um, is the study of life, bios. Um, so the theos part of theology just means God. So in a really simple level, the study of God. Um, if you think about it, you know, I was studying particularly in the Christian tradition. Um, so theology in that sense is sort of um, looking at what has been revealed to us about God in the scriptures and in the tradition, and then rationally working to understand that. And then, of course, the ethics piece always keeps an eye towards like the practical application of that. So how do we move from what we believe as a, as a community to how we live that is kind of maybe the most general way I could talk about what theology or um, some people call it moral theology or Christian ethics, kind of two ways of talking about the, the discipline within theology that I'm trained in. 
Yeah, I think just throwing the word ethics in there is like, ooh, there's some yeah. <laughs> like what, what? That's such like an abstract, you know? Like I, <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting. So you're saying the ethics portion is like the I don't want to like make it summarize it, but like the practical or like the the guidance of it of how to like live it out. Yeah, I would say that. Um, one of my current colleagues in my uh, where I work within the healthcare system of SSM health right now likes to use this when we introduce it to, um, to people in our healthcare system um, that you could say it's, there's sort of three questions. Um, who am I or who are we for thinking of it communally? Um, what do I believe and value or what do we believe and value? And therefore how ought I to act or live my life? And that's, I think that's a great way of summarizing what we do in, in moral theology or Christian ethics. So what's our basic identity as a Christian? Um, what do we believe based on that? And then based on those two things, how should we live our lives? Just three like super simple questions. Yeah, you know, you know, it's a pretty, pretty simple stuff. You just, <laughs> yeah. you know. Check a couple boxes and you're, yeah. <laughs> it's it's basically just an, it's an algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you want to go into a little bit of your story of how you got introduced to your own practice and yeah, then yeah. what that looks I mean, like I now could, or how you put your just, podcast together? Yeah. I could definitely just keep my inquiries about your, your uh, journey, but I think we should maybe. We can go back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, as far as like my, you know, the, the journey, I would say that like the foundation was set um, growing up, being born and raised as in, you know, the Catholic tradition. Um, and then my dad has also been a yoga teacher for about 30 years now. Um, and cool. so the definitely like the more rigorous religious structure was there through the uh, Catholic tradition. But then I think, um, you know, some of the other like just, you know, I don't even know how to classify them. I mean, it's definitely like, you know, religions intertwined in yoga, but maybe not like specifically a religion, um, but just kind of some of those like, you know, um, other practices or, um, you know, I don't even want to call them like thought processes, but, uh, some, some, some other dogma, but like, you know, some of the like meditation and yoga and like, I don't know, part of me wants to call it that, like a, a mystic portion of, of that tradition. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So yeah, have been around that for a while, but never really, you know, like did a couple yoga poses as a child. wasn't really into anything like that, um, but was always kind of around the, you know, around those sort of uh, things. Um, and then, you know, it came to be, I was working in Chicago at the time. Now this is five years ago and was just chatting with one of uh, the new colleagues there and was talking about kind of like our spiritual practice. He was born and raised uh, Jewish and so um, Judaism. And so he, you know, his dad is a regular practitioner. It's kind of funny um, when we talked about like our dads, we were like, yeah, that's our same dad, just in Catholic and the Jewish, you know, <laughs> the Jewish tradition. Like, yeah, the same person. Yeah. So we kind of yeah. had that. Well, they're cousins. That's how I think. That's how we like to think of uh, where Christianity is the younger cousin of Judaism. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that, yeah, definitely a lot of the same, I think, rituals were involved in, in their devotion to practice. So, um, but no, we, and then we had talked about, you know, candidly about we had uh, college experiences with, you know, psychedelic experiences and what would be like, you know, kind of out of body stuff that brought us um, to, I think what those did for me was like, you know, as, as a college student, they were just like, you know, let's have a fun experience, but really what it, what it ends up manifesting now today is more about like the mind is a really powerful thing you know and like really kind of showed me that like you can you could it's the perspective and the way that you paint your own reality is kind of how you come to understand it you know and so um and just being able to manipulate that through like psychedelics was really interesting um i would say that's kind of like my gateway into all this stuff um Mm -hmm. but then you know the so we were talking about having you know uh this background and then it came, you know, nothing came of that, but uh, February of about five years ago rolls around and it was the one year anniversary of his, one of his best friends passing away in a tragic car accident. And it's still kind of interesting today. And I was actually thinking about it very recently about how like his friend's passing now has really brought on to this like really beautiful shift in both Zach, who the colleague that I was talking uh, that I'm talking about, like a beautiful shift. Um, And I don't know, you know, we might not have really done it if, if it wasn't like such a, an emotional day for him. But so he was like, you know, we talked about meditation. Hey, let's try this. You know, let's try meditation. Um, I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. Like I'm here for you, whatever. And so he downloads Headspace and he, we, it's, they have a beginner pack that's like 10 minutes for 10 days. And so we download, you know, Headspace, we do one day, we do two days. And then like, honestly, from there, we're off to the races. Uh, mm-hmm. And we did it, you know, consistently, we would, uh, we would do it first thing in the morning. Um, and it's been for both of us, you know, coming up on these, these five years. Uh, and in between there, you know, I think within the first like, six months, we just had a really fundamental shift in like, I think for me, it was mostly about the way that I saw my coworkers and like some that were maybe more difficult. I was like, Oh, they're just kind of humans trying to like survive (laughs) as we all are, you know? And, um, and we felt the way I describe it is like felt kind of selfish, uh, that we were experiencing these things. So we wanted to share them with as many people as we could. Um, and so our first, our first experience with that, we actually had a, uh, program for citizen school is the program they're started out of Boston and what they do is they do instead of just throwing kids in after school programs where it's like they throw them in a study hall and make them do their homework it's like real life skills that they develop and so uh, we put our name in the hat as uh, to throw meditation in there to help these sixth seventh and eighth graders and um, you know it's it's we we did a presentation for the kids and they pick it themselves. So like, you know, they can always come back and be like, well, you chose this yourself. You wanted to do this. But uh, thir- 13, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders were like, meditation sounds like what I want to do. So um, we did that, both Zach and I, we taught them. And that was really, you know, a really profound experience. I think um, children and, and the youth have a really interesting lens by which they view the world. And so it was really kind of a cool experience to to see that. Um, yeah. And then mm. we, so we did that experience again. We're like, that was super fulfilling, but still felt like this almost, you know, need to be able to share this with more people. And um, just so happened that a buddy introduced me to another friend that started a podcast and I talked to him 
and it was like a super easy process to get up and running as you're familiar with. And, and I asked Zach, I was like, Hey, you want to start a podcast? Like, let's just, let's just any other outlet, you know? And, um, and this is now, you know, coming up on three years, it's been running, doing the podcast. Uh, and so Zach is, you know, no longer, um, a part of this project, at least we still keep in touch and no, nothing, no hard feelings there or anything, but, um, so yeah, that's kind of how everything comes to, to present day about, you know, hosting this podcast and just a little bit about the spiritual journey that got me there. Wow. That's really cool. So, uh, what would you say is the focus of your podcast? Like if you were giving the elevator pitch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, really what I uh, set out to do and, and it holds true to this day with what we set out to do originally was like, just talk to as many people as we could about their, their experiences with contemplative practices, because I think there's a whole lot of information out there about, you know, different practices, what they look like. And some of them seem idealized or they seem not reachable for lay people. Um, you know, I think of the, the classic example anybody gives is like any sort of monastic life or, you know, taking up robes and being like, you have to, in order, you have to dedicate your entire life every moment to it in order to see some sort of meaningful experience. But I think it's, you know, uh, looking to just talk to people to get as many different different experiences of the different ways that people are practicing to help shed that perspective for others that may think like, you know, Oh, it has to look a certain way or like, you know, it's, it's always people who are, you know, always zend out and really calm all the time or like, you know, different, <laughs> just all the different like classic myths that you think about. Um, so trying to really just interview as many people and, and talk to as many people about their practice and what it looks like to help others maybe break down some of those limiting beliefs and, and really to, to allow people to develop their own personal practice. Cause I think, you know, that's really what it boils down to is you might take some things from a couple of different places, or you might be really dedicated to one specific practice, but really making it your own and seeing what fits for you and, and your circumstances. Yeah. I'm curious about how um, in today's world that there's a, there's a, there's a mingling of different practices and traditions because um, even though centering prayer still feels like my kind of home tradition, it's been informed by Buddhist thought. I didn't even talk about being introduced to yoga and, and that whole dimension. Um, and so I'm curious, what, what, how would you describe your sort of day-to-day -day practice? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, Cause I would say, you know, it's, it's somewhere around that, like, if we're talking about traditions and where it's come from, definitely like a, maybe a more Buddhist centered practice. And I, I think, you know, just to, as an aside here, like the, the way that I view like the, or the way that I've come to view a lot of things is like, I think labels are really interesting in how they like construct the way that we look at things. And so I, I think like, there's a lot of different practices that are probably influenced, you know, that, that the different stuff that I do, but it really, it's just like a, you know, traditional Vipassana or like mindfulness practice, um, following the breath. It's, it's at the very least, um, a minimum of 10 minutes a day. And I'm usually just doing it, you know, right first thing in the morning, um, or whenever, you know, if I don't do that, it's probably right before bed. Um, but yeah, more like, uh, in somewhat of, you know, Buddhist tradition, um, Vipassana somewhere 
in the mindfulness. But yeah, like you're saying, I mean, it all, you know, there's like, it's, it's like a, a race to take credit for who had it first, you know, of like this sort of <laughs> contemplative practice or, um, you know, I don't view it that way, certainly, but I think, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot, there's, there's a foundation in, even when you were talking about centering prayer about like, you know, a mindfulness experience or like a more of a transcendental, like mantra based practice, you know? So I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And I've been, I guess I'm sort of curious about how I, I sort of think of, of the contemplative experience as a universal part of the human experience and that there are different doorways that people either discover or sometimes even have thrust on them by life circumstances that open that up. And it, a couple of things that you shared in your own narrative that were fascinating that sounded like open that up. Um, was experience with psychedelics, which I think is there's sort of a fascination fascination with right now, uh, Michael Pollan's book and um, things like that, and then which kind of again it it opens a doorway to one of those other lenses, and then I'm always I'm really fascinated by um, how experiences with death also raise these kinds of questions or open these experiences. So it's interesting that your friend. Um, invited you to try this after dealing with the loss of his friend. Um, and I actually, I, I kind of skipped it over because I picked up my story in college, but I think one of the significant experiences for me very early was the death of my cousin, who was probably my closest family friend growing up. Um, he died of brain cancer when we were in high school. And I think that that only added to my curiosity around, you know, what are we, if we say we're a soul and we're more than this body and we believe that consciousness extends beyond what we can touch in this earth, Hmm. um, that sort of leads into the contemplative kind of experience. Yeah. For Um, sure. And um, something else that, that I uh, have heard from one of my teachers in the yoga tradition um, the way he talks about it is, um, he says, he'll say that, that yoga is the, is the science of religion, the practice, as opposed to the, um, say the belief or the, the dogma piece of it, um, which has been a helpful way of thinking about it for me. I don't know if that resonates with your own experience. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was thinking, you know, as you were talking about it, like, um, just I think the crossover of a lot of these things like you're talking about the foundation of like human nature and because uh, I was I was uh, had a guest on Jeff Siegel and he was talking about we were kind of talking about how like you know how things have become really popular uh, nowadays and like people are selling you know I think like I, I brought up the example of Russell Wilson having his like um, I think mind training practices and I was like you know should it should it be where all these people are kind of touting these things and really what it is is like a meditation. And he's like, well, how do you define meditation? And I was kind of, you know, I was like kind of stumped there. And I, and as I kind of like unpacked it, you know, it's like, well, then there's the way that I define it and the way that like I liked that he said it is like always pushing towards the edge of now, you know? And so mm. like just coming into closer contact with the now and, um, I think it's interesting about like how, how I was defining it, which was very limiting. But then if you, you know, if you really think about it, like, what are you, what are you trying to do or or how are you really defining it? And like the power of what it is, I think there's, you know, 
many different ways that it could look and it doesn't certainly have to look a certain way at all, you know? And so, yeah, I think it's just kind of, it, it really opened my eyes. Uh, and this is only as of like four months ago. And so I <laughs> kind of feel almost ashamed, you know, I was like, well, these people out here touting this mindfulness stuff, like just call it what it is. And it's like, no, it's, you know, there's, there's many different ways of it looking and who cares really what you call it, I guess, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I think one of the, the, the interesting thing of what you were talking about is like uh, your fascination with, with death and kind of what that does for people. And I think, you know, as I think right now um, for, for maybe some context for the listeners, like we're April 3rd, we're recording this. And so we're, we're in this kind of weird COVID-19 um, pandemic coming on. And really the way that I've thought about it is like, you are, a lot is going on and I think death is certainly a part of that. And, and it is like one of the most intimate experiences with life to be able to have like everything kind of shifted and the unknowns really of what, like, I think, uh, about how, like not really knowing how something will end and like what that causes you then to do internally. Um, and I think like in, in some ways, really the experience of like having a if it's a close loved one I think that's probably a little bit different more of an intimate experience but even just in general like being intimate with the experience of having someone you know passing away is like you're at your most intimate with the realities of life in these situations and it's really interesting like you know how that then manifests itself you know I think like you were talking Mm. about like it it ends up becoming this like in many ways existential experience of like this is a reality we all face and so then what what do i make of it all you know mm-hmm. and so i think it it is definitely a natural thing and i've been really kind of contemplating on that that experience not only just death but i think of like the unknowns that that we all grapple with you know and and how that that is at least the way i'm looking at it right now is like the most intimate way to experience life I love that language that you used about it being an intimate experience um, because I, I have also been thinking a lot about this as we are social distancing. And while nobody would choose the means by which we're all put in this situation, which is suffering and death, which is you know the real the reality that we're all trying to mitigate how much of that gets spread by doing this. Um, but all the anxiety that that brings up, um, all of the, the fear, I think it's, I mean, it's an opportunity and I want to be careful how I say that. Cause I don't, I don't want to cheapen the experience of like how people are suffering or make it seem like that. But if we look at life is the teacher, um, then how we're responding to this current situation is an opportunity to um, to think about how we engage with life, even when it's not so crazy. So this moment is almost like a, a mirror back to us to think about what, where, what's really important. Um, and at the end of the day, I think life is always full of um, ambiguities and unknowns. It's just more in our face right now. So how do we embrace Mm -hmm. that? How do we um, surrender into that while it being difficult and painful? Um, So I think there is an opportunity there for um, 
for us as a as a world community facing this together yeah i'm curious from your perspective like um yeah like you were saying about like not wanting to cheapen the the experience that people are going through but um you know like the experience that the inevitability of death and i think when like senseless death happens when you know terrorism or things like that you can't really kind of make sense of that sort of thing and so i think it you know i'm i understand what you're saying about like the i think like kind of the necessary nature of that but how do you how do you like personally grapple with that because i think like you're saying there's there is always a lesson to be learned and it's not always going to be something that you wanted or desired to to experience in order to learn something but i guess like how do you look at that like the senseless death and kind of make sense of it amongst all of everything mm. i mean that <laughs> it's like one of the most difficult questions i think we have as a as humans is how to the attempt to try to make sense of it um and i guess some of those more tragic things i'm not sure i'm not sure we can come up with a rational explanation that makes sense of it but we can um if i think about my practice as primarily being about consent or saying yes to whatever is arising that even when things arise that i don't like but if they're beyond my control as is the case with the covid virus or um you know, the death of my cousin or your friend's death, then the question becomes, how do I say yes to that and move through it or allow it to move through me in a way that I don't close my heart? Because I think I've had several teachers who have really focused on that. Um, I think when, when we experience trauma or challenge or loss or fear, we tend to narrow and um, hunker down and protect, whether it's ourselves individually or our people, however we define that, in-group, out-group. Um, but that actually is just laying the roots for more suffering in the future. So how do I allow an experience that I didn't choose to open me to find more compassion in that experience? And one of the things that I found really difficult with this social distancing is working, say, where I currently do in healthcare, I'm in touch with people. I'm, so I'm, I am not patient facing. So I'm, I don't typically interact directly with patients. I, I'm more in an administrative role as a mission leader. And so we've been kind of identified as like, if you can work from home, it's actually the more compassionate thing to do to isolate yourself because you're taking yourself as a potential carrier of the virus out of the situation and limiting the spread. So it's, but it's really hard to sit in a room and talk to people who are out there with patients who are experiencing that anxiety um, and that fear. So for me, it's about coming back to when that arises, like I can start to go crazy of like, I need to get out there and do something. But the reality is that sometimes the best thing we can do is to just be present and um, I'll not get totally caught up in, in the anxiety of it. 
Yeah, no, I love that about, uh, you know, taking it away that where you're not, you know, closing your heart um, or allowing it to close more. Yeah, it's really, that's beautiful. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think whether it's the external experience that we have or our own internal thoughts and fears, that's the, that's the fundamental challenge of, of what we're trying to learn with our practice and why, why it's a practice that we have to keep doing day in and day out because it's our it's a natural desire to want to kind of close down and protect yeah no for sure <laughs> so yeah i think you know the the way that i have come to view i certainly haven't always seen it this way but like you know each experience is is going to teach you something. And um, I think sometimes you're ready for the lesson and sometimes you're not in a place to get <laughs> it where I've kind of like rejected. If I think about like my teen years, let's call it, uh, sure. you know, for um, to be able to kind of see those lessons or hear them in a way that's constructive. And um, so, you know, I think coming to, to see that, you know, uh, or, or viewing things through that, that sort of lens has been really beneficial. Uh, and it's not where you, like you said, I don't think it manifests itself. Like this is a logical explanation for it. Um, it's more just about like understanding how things are at the end of the day, how they're impacting you yourself internally. What are those sort of responses and what are they saying? And, and then what are you going to do with those, you know, from there? And, uh, you know, I think like you're saying, the the practice and the, you know, repetition of doing stuff, in my experience, has given me the space to to be open to maybe more than I'm just seeing about like the tragedy of things, you know, like there's, there's definitely some lesson inside of me about my emotional response and like, you know, how I'm showing up to certain experiences um, through again, that that practice of like allowing myself that space. So it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah and I, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about something that I've appreciated from Buddhist friends and, and people that I've learned from is the, the Bodhisattva vow, which is to basically accept. Um, there's even, I think there's a sort of a prayer that's a translation, but you know, may this experience serve to, to foster my enlightenment and the enlightenment of all beings you know, um, is a really powerful prayer. Um, or maybe that's not the right word for it, but <laughs> meditation, oh, yeah. Right, yeah. um, there's a, there's a practice that is often considered kind of a complement to centering prayer called the welcoming prayer. And the basic idea is, um, you know, the centering prayer is more like a, a formal sitting practice. The welcoming prayer is, um, well, Thomas Keating calls it consent on the go. So when you're in the moment and you have that moment, it's a short prayer of um, opening, just recognizing what is and allowing yourself to feel it, accepting it. Um, and then it uh, kind of moves through a, a, a saying of like, I accept, accept this moment as it is. Um, I surrender my need for um, affection, control, and allow the moment to be what it is. I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but um, similar to the kind of bodhisattva vow, which is, uh, it's a tool for when 
when things arise in the middle of the day or on the go to come back to that space of acceptance and opening. Mm. Yeah, I like that a lot. Have you, you mentioned before kind of your daily practice, have you found ways that, that you come back to that as you're sort of going through, say your, your work day or being with family, kids, spouse, yeah, for sure. Uh, I would say the place that shows up the most is with my spouse, for sure, because I think that's the most, that is, if if the life experiences give you these lessons about, you know, your own internal experience, the person I'm most sharing my internal experience with is, is my wife. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think, you know, the the area that I see it the most, you know, is where like the practice of just bringing your focus back to some sort of anchor, um, which I typically just use, you know, the breath sensation. I find that that really shows up a lot in, I would say it's, it's like a resilience thing where I still might, you know, present a non-favorable emotion let's say anger at somebody uh but it's either immediately after that or shortly after that a lot less time than before where i'm like that was that was incorrect you know or like that wasn't that was very reactive you know um and you know it's been where like i'll even acknowledge that out loud you know with my wife like yeah i didn't mean that or like that was that was kind of out of nowhere or like um and and i've even found it before where i've i have been able to like have enough space uh and this is probably a just a handful of times where i didn't even then end up you know like fulfilling the anger in a in a destructive way um Mm. with which is usually you know just just words i think more than uh anything for sure um so yeah i think just like that recognizing the power in the practice of bringing my focus back to to one specific place I do find that a lot when either it's interactions with other folks or too when, you know, my mind's wandering and it's taking me to a place where I'm like, this isn't, you know, this isn't <laughs> productive at all, you know? Um, so Unskillful like, means, right? That's what the Buddhists would call it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah. And just bringing it back to, to the, to the breath and it's, it's hugely powerful. Um, mm. yeah. yeah. That's interesting. One of the things that we talk about in the, in the intro workshop to centering prayer, um, the last conference talks about the fruits of the practice. And and one of the things that comes up is that we find that we're able to sort of come back to a more emotionally balanced place more quickly if we do get thrown off. Or as you mentioned, on those um, great occasions where you actually catch yourself before having the reaction, (laughs) which are maybe not as frequent as I might wish. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but that 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 that's where the fruits of the practice really start to play out in daily life. It's like um I was I just started learning guitar a few months ago and my teacher who also um has some familiarity with with contemplative prayer and meditation suggested this book that I read called Effortless Mastery um by Kenny Werner I think is his name but uh, it's actually informed a lot by the yoga philosophy of meditation for practicing an instrument. 
But one of the things that he talks about is he's, he calls it the space and I'm holding up in air quotes, uh, but you can't see it on the radio. Um, but he calls the space, that space where we're just free to play and create. And that's been a helpful image for me to think about. Um, ideally, if I were totally free and an enlightened being, I would, we would live in that space all the time. Yeah. and be totally free and not triggered by anything and nothing would set us <laughs> off and we'd be loving and creative. Um, and maybe I'm not going to get there in this lifetime, probably not. Um, but at least to think that that's possible, I find a really powerful um, way of thinking about, again, why we practice to bring us back to that, to make it easier to settle into that. So when you were describing that with, with your wife, um, that resonates with me as well. That Yeah easier to come back i think it's yeah it's it's interesting how um you know the thinking about like the journey is the destination because you're never you're never quite arriving you know where i think you're just finding out more or as i always put it like i find out uh or i shed what i knew about myself it's not so much finding out stuff that was already there i kind of find it like shedding stuff that i thought i knew Um, Mm. really getting down to this core but like you just learn more things and then they kind of or unlearn as I'm positioning it and and then they kind of lead to another you know portion of small little nook and cranny in your life and like that continues on and uh, that's that for me is is what I find to be what is continually exciting and it's not something that I'm looking for or like hinging my practice on but I think the thought of like I always put it as like, this is a life's work. Like this is worth putting in your life to do this. Um, at least, you know, for myself, I've, I've deemed it as that. And so I think it's really cool to, in, in many ways, like thinking about something that really never ends or you never reach there. But for me, it's like, hmm. I think that's what is the, the alluring thing about it. Um, and certainly there's been experiences along the way where it's like, oh, this has been really practically beneficial. But again, that's not really where I'm trying to like stake my practice on. It's more just about continuing on this like unknown journey of, of either learning more about myself or unlearning what I thought I knew. So mm, I love that uh, image of it being an adventure. And I, I love the unlearning too. Um, something that I struggle with is um, as we talked before, what's theology, right? It's sort of language and reasoning about God. And, and in the contemplative experience, you realize that anything that we say or reason about God is by definition falls short. It's not that it's totally false. It just can't capture whatever we mean by the transcendent or the infinite. And so then I, I find myself even as I'm talking, struggling with what language to use, because as soon as I say God, (laughs) it brings up certain images for people based on whatever they grew up with or didn't grow up with. And then they start making assumptions about, oh, well, he must be this kind of Catholic or something. Um, But yet um, that language is there. It's part of some traditions, not all. Um, And so how do we talk about it as an unknowing, entering into a mystery? that transcends rather than um, thinking that we're going to understand and be able to control it in that way. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the interesting things that uh, you're talking about, like the language of it all, I think like in your view, 
I think that religions have and still do have, you know, a very beneficial for a number of reasons, but how much do they do in a sense of like dividing us on what we think is a separate viewpoint? Cause like yeah. oftentimes I, I, there's like this joke that I always think about um, where essentially it's like, you know, people are, I think it's, people are going to heaven and it's like someone from, you know, like Judaism or Muslim or something like that or Christianity. And they're like, uh, basically the, the line is like the, the joke is like, everybody's up there. We're all just kind of like thinking that we're alone in the, you know, each religion thinks that they're alone in like their destination, but we're all just kind of like hanging out in the same space. Um, and so like, I guess back to the main question about like how much does defining things as a certain other religion seem to, to be divisive in just like creating humanity, you know, or like collective humanity. Oh man, that's such a great question. This came up a lot. There was a group that I was a part of in um, 2017. We all gathered in Snowmass, Colorado of um, younger-ish kind of Christian contemplative people in that space. And I think one of the reasons that those of us who are committed to this part of the path within our tradition stay so committed is because we see it as a way to honor the faith tradition that we've been given and that we find ourselves in, in Christianity, um, in a way that um, the contemplative path sort of opens to an appreciation of how we are all in this together. Um, Richard Rohr likes to talk a lot about uh, as union, and one of the title of his books is Everything Belongs. So how do we, I think um, part of what, maybe, maybe this is part of my, my purpose or vocation is to offer an image of Christianity and practice that opens to the affirmation of all rather than the exclusion because there's so many public examples that we can think of um, where Christianity gets turned into that. Or, um, and I think you kind of started by talking about how there's, there's value in religious traditions um, because they convey these important teachings and truths. And at the same time, they can also be turned into a fundamentalism. And it's true of any tradition. Um, In fact, it's true of even non-religious traditions, right? I think secularism can become a a fundamentalism if, if that means that you automatically exclude anything transcendent. Um, So it, the contemplative path, kind of shows us or makes it easier to see where we tend to get caught up in those fundamentalisms where it has to be this way. It has to be, I'm in and you're out and opens instead to say, if I go into my tradition and you go into your tradition, we can meet each other there and be brothers and sisters to each other. Um, that, that's sort of the, I think the hope for those of us who still, um, stay within a tradition, sometimes hanging on by a thread, <laughs> uh, and not, and often not even sure where we fit um, in that space, but also feeling like that's that's where we are and that's where we're called. And as you said before, kind of live in the unknown of that, but try to live into something new. Yeah, no, I love that a lot. I think you know the that's really 
even just asking of anybody to just be open, I think is, is really cool um, to think about you like just intentionally cultivating that, you know? Um, so that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I know we talked about maybe sharing a little bit of how we approach practice. Um, yeah. Do you want to kind of give us a taste of how you might lead somebody into a, an experience that you're familiar with or that you might teach? Yeah, absolutely. We'll just do maybe a quick minute or two. Okay. Um, yeah. So getting in any comfortable position, uh, any seated position and could probably just do it with your eyes closed here to start out or sorry, eyes open, <laughs> eyes open. There we go. Let's have a couple people wrongfully directed. Um, so with your eyes open and as I mentioned about the breath as an anchor or as your main focus, uh, taking a deep breath in through your nose, exhaling out of your mouth, Inhale deep in through your nose, becoming more in tune with right now, exhaling out of your mouth, inhaling again in through your nose, and if you're comfortable on your exhale, closing your eyes. And then just asking yourself the question, how do I know that I am breathing? Finding out if there's any small sensations that you're feeling with your breath and trying to maintain focus on that area. And as the mind does and is trained to do, it'll wander off to something that happened in the past, something that's supposed to happen in the future. And the real power that I talked about earlier is in that recognition of the mind wandering. No matter how many times you have to recognize that, bringing your focus back to this experience of your breath that you're focusing on, and doing so with kindness and curiosity. Kindness to yourself. We're not trying to change anything. We're just trying to identify our present moment experience and curiosity to either deepen and align yourself closer with your inner experience or unlearning what you maybe thought you knew about yourself. And that's basic uh, element of that kind of, you know, sitting for however long you'd want to do that. And, and again, the main focus of recognizing that your mind has wandered and an importance on kindness and curiosity to that experience. And that is that essentially that practice has served me well for 
close to five years now. So, <laughs> yeah. And probably will take you farther. Hell <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No stopping this train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So I was going along with that and I put me into a, uh, a good space. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. You want to reciprocate here and share sure. a centering prayer if that's, yeah, I want to be conscious of, of your time as well. Sure. Well, um, I'll say that if, if people are interested in the, in the full kind of workshop that I mentioned before, I can put up a link to contemplative outreach in the show notes page. Um, what I'll do is typically when you would sit down to practice, the, the guideline is to sit for 20 to 30 minutes. Um, so we won't do that right now, but I will, I can read the four guidelines and uh, talk a little bit about what those look like. And uh, there's actually an app that I'm pulling this straight from. And uh, it's nice because then you can just set your time, have the four guidelines. Sometimes there's like an opening reading or a prayer that you can use. But the four guidelines for centering prayer are one, choose a sacred word as the symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. Two, sitting comfortably and with eyes closed, settle briefly and silently introduce the sacred word as the symbol of your consent to God's presence and action within. Three, when engaged with your thoughts, return ever so gently to the sacred word. And a little footnote on the word thoughts. Thoughts can include body sensations, feelings, images, reflections, or memories. And then fourth guideline, at the end of the prayer period, remain in silence with the eyes closed for a couple of minutes. So typically, we would have uh, give people a moment to kind of think through, choose a word. We usually suggest it's a short word of one or two syllables. Um, and it can be a word, again, the, the meaning of the word itself doesn't matter so much as that it becomes a symbol of your consent to say yes to whatever comes up or to God's presence and action within. So if folks want to celebrate or celebrate practice while they're, while they're listening, you just choose a short word and then move into a space of silence. And then again, every, the third guideline is when engaged with your thoughts or when you notice that you're engaged with your thoughts, return ever so gently to the sacred word. So we can just maybe do a minute or two if people want to practice or if you want to practice right now. And normally, especially if you use the timer, there's a nice bell at the end that's gentle enough to bring you back to kind of close the end of the time. And then you don't have to keep time if you have your eyes closed.
But I, one thing that I appreciated is your emphasis on that kindness and curiosity. And we spend a good amount of time talking about what it means to return gently to your sacred word, as opposed to um, using it like a weapon, <laughs> like, uh, you know, scaring the thoughts away or um, pushing them out is not the purpose, but rather to just come back to the sacred word gently to let go of, of whatever thought is going by without getting caught up in it. And just noticing what happens when we don't give our energy to what, to what comes up. Beautiful. Mm. It's fantastic. Yeah. And then I will say I have, um, a version of this that I have, it's on an ebook actually on my website that people can download. So, you know, when I do this, the centering prayer workshop, people come kind of knowing that it's going to be from a specific faith tradition, but I also do workshops and things with like corporate groups or um, even in my current work where people come from a lot of different backgrounds. And so there's a, there's a version of that that can be done that um, is so it, like the first guideline uh, talking about choosing a sacred word as the symbol of your intention to say yes to whatever is arising in your experience um, is another way that it can be practiced as well. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. What is uh what is the website? Uh, which one? Sorry, I mentioned. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess maybe if if your website encompasses some of these, uh, or just I think the contemplative one too. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, the one I mentioned, I guess, where the ebook is, is called centeringforwisdom.com. That's all one word. Um, that right now it's just a landing page on April third, twenty twenty. Hopefully, within the next month or so, that'll be a full page that or a site that offers a bunch more resources but um, people can go there and download that ebook and get a uh, another guided meditation that goes along with it Um, and then I have a bunch more resources on my my kind of personal site which is thomasjbushlack.com cool What, what about you are there places that people can go to find out more about you or the podcast yeah, so um, you can check out podcasts, Catching Z's, anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Um, and I don't have, other than social media, I don't have like a website or anything. So I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Um, so just Catching Z's, you can find me there. Millennial's Guide to Mindfulness is kind of the subheading. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best way. Uh, reach out to me there. And again, I, cool. I kind of mentioned at the beginning when you asked me about the purpose of it, like just exploring anybody's contemplative practice. So if folks want to reach out, would love to just talk through it, you know, similar to this experience and just help share it for others to, you know, pick and choose some things that they think is beneficial for them and develop their own practice and, and see for themselves the, the benefits and the wonder of it all. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and something that I um, particularly think is is neat about what you're doing is kind of coming at it from that millennial perspective. We're we're doing some good intergenerational dialogue here because I'm a I'm a late Gen Xer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I always say I'm kind of on the border. Um, my work habits probably look more like a millennial, but I'm definitely a Gen Xer. Um, 
So we're, we're modeling that, uh, interspiritual and intergenerational dialogue here. There you go. Yeah, no, it's been <laughs> awesome. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think it's, you know, uh, it's great to, like you said, just the openness. Um, and not that I ever thought you were close to it anyway, but I think, you know, it's <laughs> cool to share that sort of uh, interspiritual stuff. And there's definitely would love to cultivate more of it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, everybody, for being here with Nick and me, and I hope you feel a part of this conversation, especially as you deepen your contemplative practice and bring the fruits of your practice into this beautiful world. You can see more about Nick and the Catching Z's podcast at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 26. While you're there, don't forget to download your free guided meditation, and then you can buzz on over to centeringforwisdom.com. That's all one word, Centering for Wisdom. And get my free ebook on how to start practicing Centering for Wisdom. And another bonus guided meditation. Whether you're new to contemplative prayer or meditation, or a lifelong practitioner, you'll find some great insights into how to get in touch with your inner wisdom and share it with others in your work and in your personal life. I am so grateful that you're here, and I want to thank each and every one of you for listening and helping to share these interviews. May you find peace during these challenging coronavirus days, especially in your contemplative practice. I encourage you to keep moving toward the edge of now, as Nick so eloquently put it. Thanks, and peace be with you. Mm-hmm.